When your child is struggling, as a parent, you need support. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm at the 46th Annual Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium. This is in Colorado Springs, and once again, I get my hands on the experts. The men and women who are speaking at this conference, the, the, the other people having booths here, this is where all the experts in the industry of mental health and addiction and recovery gather to share the information they have, and I wanna get it into your hands. So thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. PTSD is something we all started hearing a lot about um, a good 10 years back, especially when it has to, had to do with our, with our soldiers and our veterans. Um, and it, it's, as we understood PTSD more, uh, it explained a lot for uh, spouses and uh, men and women who've served in the past. We started to look at fathers and grandfathers and said, oh, that's why. Um, and, and once, once it became a mainstream concept to talk about, once we all got comfortable talking about PTSD, uh, then we rec- began to recognize that it was all over the place. It wasn't just reserved for um, our soldiers, our men and women who've served, um, and not just our soldiers, uh, uh, our police officers, our firefighters, right. our, our first responders. I have Dr. Brisk in here. Um, he's one of the speakers here at the event talking about PTSD. And doctor, you actually do work with vets. Oh, yes, I do. Okay. How long have you done this? Um, almost 40 years. 40 years. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when did, be, because in the industry, we know that um, we'll hear things and then we'll talk about things, and then we'll all agree on things, and then the populace gets it. Mm-hmm. How long ago have you guys been talking about PTSD? Actually, the term came into being around 1979, 1980. Okay. And it was from the Readjustment Counseling Act helping to deal with the overload of Vietnam veterans returning with symptoms that were not identified and were not being provided care for or proper diagnosis. So there was a spontaneous movement in the veteran community to try to get recognition and a number of mental health people got together and they basically formed a coalition and directly lobbied Congress to get recognition and they passed this Readjustment Counseling Act to focus on the symptoms associated with serving in war. And they debated as to what to call it. At first, they were going to call it post-Vietnam syndrome. That was too limiting. And they had a lot of discussion and deep thought about what qualifies you to get this condition and what is it or is it not. So that's been ongoing in terms of trying to grasp something that we were in denial of forever. Because it used to be thought, you go to war, you come home, you go to work, you forget about it, it's all over. There's nothing associated with it. Now, to be fair, there were prior diagnostic terms like shell shock and battle fatigue, uh, e- even soldiers hard or you know, what, what were used during civil war. So there were concepts to try to capture this, but none of those labels carried over between wars and the, the vocabulary changed. And people basically didn't pay much attention to the fact that trauma exposure creates certain key symptoms that are pretty reliably predictive and have certain powers that bleed over into other areas, including self-medication with alcohol and drugs, family violence, um, impulsivity, etc. There, there are many, many 
features of the diagnosis that we can get into if you have questions going forward. But um, essentially what happened in 1980 is that we had a change in the entire realm of mental health because previous to that, it was believed that any problem that we run into has to do with our upbringing before the age of five. And this basically violated that and saying, hey, perfectly healthy 18-year-olds can go into war and come back completely changed, having all these symptoms. So, and plus, this was not developmental. This is something that was exposure from the outside world and it was traumatic in nature. So that completely changed the line of thinking in the mental health community to say, hey, you know what? Heavy exposure to outside events can really change who you are, how you think, what you do, and subsequently we now know it even rewires the brain. So we, we have a greater understanding and appreciation that some generations before we overlooked and basically said, hey, everything happens before the age of 12 and after that it's not important. Now we know that what happens early in life and later in life, if it's traumatic, has a definite poignancy and power that can really alter the way people function. A lot of, uh, admittedly, I want to stick with soldiers mm -hmm. sure. and, and and this PTSD experience that that is is your direct sure. uh, uh, work. A lot of my understanding of what soldiers go through and PTSD has come from Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman on combat, on killing, mm -hmm. uh, which was a pretty profound study, mm -hmm. not only in what um, our military personnel were experiencing coming home, but during training. Yeah. So that's one of the things I want to discuss is, is that, you know, that, that a lot of PTSD is happening during training right. yeah. and the recognition that to train someone properly to be able to be in combat, mm -hmm. we literally have to traumatize the body That's in correct. training. That's correct. The, the second piece that I also want to address in a little bit is that since uh, uh, Korea, mm -hmm. after Korea, one of the things that changed with Vietnam is that when the soldiers were coming home, they were avoiding uh, fraternal experiences like the Freemasons, like the Oddfellows, like becoming um, uh, uh, Elks and Lions Club and stuff like that. And all these organizations, memberships have diminished mm -hmm. when prior to that, and, and I have experience mm -hmm. with it as a Freemason, that... that uh, a lot of World War II and Korea vets continued that concept of brotherhood and all were able to speak to the fact that that kept them sane, safe, and connected to a, to a, a band of brothers. Right. For, for lack of a better term, a band of brothers. So let's, let's first go back to the training and the component. Okay. Can we intentionally create a killer most definitely. In fact, that's the whole goal of training is to disinhibit the prohibition against hurting someone or killing another. And it's kind of, fortunately, it's wired into us to be more cooperative and gracious for about 95% of the population wants to belong, fit in, and cooperate. That's what makes us... And the other 5% is sociopathic in right. nature? Right. They, they, okay. they lack the capacity for empathy. They are predatory. They don't have a sense of moral development. They hear it, but they just use it to prey upon others. They're a minority in the population, and they're dangerous, and they're self-selecting. I want to I reiterate what you just said, because mm -hmm. you're, you just said 95% of us, because the, 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 uh, a populist belief is man was meant to kill, and we're not actually... Actually, it's against nature That's to correct. do this. That's okay. correct. It takes a tremendous amount 
of training to teach someone to take another person's life. And it is so deeply grounded in, even when you're trained to do it, when you get into an actual combat situation, at least 25% of all people freeze, even in the risk of them dying in, in the face of the first firefight, because it's so hard to do it. And a number of veterans that I've worked with talk about having to slap somebody into doing their job, which is to kill the enemy. In, in the Civil War, they used to have to walk through the trenches with a club, yeah. and they would club soldiers that weren't firing their weapons. Yeah. And now I also read a statistic in World War II, they say only 15% of men actually fired their rifles. And and the, and the amount of damage that was done with that fifteen percent is astronomical. But we're still talking about a training piece. Well, again, just to correct you slightly, Please most do. people in firefights, the first exposure, only about fifteen twenty five percent first fire exposure. Their, uh, they, they, they don't fire, but they learn to fire, and they learn to become a unit. There's a self-selection. They either make it or they don't. And Thank those you. who learn to overcome their resistance, they, there's a transformation occurs. And that's where the emotional damage comes in. Perfect. They become cold. So getting back to your original question, yes. the training in of itself teaches you to dissociate, teaches you to ignore pain. So if you look at the branches of service, you know, the old joke is your, your drill instructor is not your mother. They're not there to be nice to you, tell you to clean up your room. They scream at you from the beginning. They deprive you of sleep. They push you, stress you out with a purpose in mind. And that's to teach you not to uh, pay attention to pain or fatigue. You need to get stronger and tougher and learn to follow a command without complicated processing. And that's a hard thing to do because we're creatures of thinking. So the, And it's a, there's also a developmental process. So at 18 years old, we're more naive and, and vulnerable and a command is given, you know, you're more likely to follow it if you've got a, a tight command structure. By the time somebody's 30 and someone says, jump, you're more likely to say how high and what for. Right. At 18, if you're well-trained, you will jump when your commander tells you to do so. It's easier to train an adolescent than somebody who's adult who will not just follow orders. So the goal of military training is to teach you to respect authority, follow orders, overcome any resistance, and don't think about it. Because if you think, contemplate, and worry about, well, how am I gonna feel after I shoot this person? You're gonna die. Right. You just need to say, that is my enemy, he is evil, I am good, and therefore I'm gonna survive, and he is not. And it's as simple as that. There's no complicated thinking. In fact, the military training teaches you to eliminate complicated thinking and get back to your training. Clean your weapon, do your job. Your only mission is to stay alive, and they train you and exhaust you until you get that. So layman's question here, if we are beginning at a very structured, organized, and uh, uh, um, uh, conscious conditioning process, mm -hmm. how is it that we end up with PTSD? If we are training the brain to do this thing, how come the brain is being traumatized by it? Well, that's because there is a delay in the emotional processing. The, the, the advanced part of the brain, the neocortex, gets shut off during a crisis, whether it's civilian or military. Okay. And basically, you learn to operate based on the primitive part of the brain that says fight or flight. So I'm either going to get the hell out of here or I'm going to eliminate the threat. But after the crisis is over, there is a returning to wondering about, well, why did I do this? What was the outcome? What was my role? What's the meaning of the complexity comes back in and some of the adrenaline wears off that um, protects you from feeling the complete horror of what you've been through. Right. So it's after you come home and getting back to your earlier question about uh, groups and, and belonging, that helps the coherence of being part of a group, VFW, American Legion, those are important um, 
features of camaraderie that kept units together and people who had a brotherhood talking to one another, hopefully in a productive way. And in the past, that was not always the case because a lot of those peer meetings were uh, potentiated by drinking and drinking. smoking. Right, exactly. So it wasn't productive, but at least there was some coherence. When the Vietnam veteran came home, basically they came home on something called the Darrow system, which basically you serve your time, we put you on a plane, and you go home. So you're not with your unit, you don't debrief, you don't have time to work things through and talk about what just happened, why did I survive and so-and-so didn't. You basically just go home, hi mom, hi dad, pass the salt and it's all over. In fact, I had one guy in a, in a group several years ago said he came back from the jungles of Vietnam and he went home to his family. They turned on the evening news and they were all riveted on their TV, um, their, their dinner plates and just watching and they showed scenes from Vietnam and he recognized people from his unit and they just saw it as another piece of news and literally they said to him, pass the salt. So there was a huge disconnect. It's wow. like, these are my people and here my own family doesn't even know what the hell is going on. So that isolation exacerbates the damage done by exposure. No one walks away free from helplessness and catastrophe, civilian or military. It affects you and how you work it through is necessary. So the illusion the military wants, wants to create for everybody is that um, you go to war, it's over, you come home and there is no damage. That is purely a myth. Everyone pays a price and how you cope with it, whether it's healthy or unhealthy is really the key. And that's part of what we do in treating PTSD is try to forge a healthy path. We don't fix the problem because the damage stays with you. You don't get over the injury, you learn to manage it. And that's an important concept because everyone wants things resolved. I want it fixed. I want it like it never happened. Unrealistic. So processing it and work, working through the symptoms is really pivotal. And we've come a long way since the Vietnam era in understanding it. But the key point is that a lot of the information and understanding about PTSD in the public domain is extremely limited and sometimes misguided because the information and the complexity doesn't cross over. We learn it from movies and books and it's selective and it's not sufficiently comprehensive. And even with my own, within my own profession, I see a lot of people trained who really don't understand what the heck this stuff is because it's really complicated and simple at the same time. We'll get back to our guest in just a second. I got to make a quick shout out to two organizations that have really helped out Fire Mountain and Beyond Risk and Back at our booth here at the Winter Symposium. First is Guayaki Yerba Mate. They have given us cases and cases of this amazing, incredible drink to hand out to other people, to get people in the industry of mental health and addiction to understand the benefits of Guayaki Yerba Mate and brain recovery, brain building. I could, I could spend an entire episode, which I did, by the way, with one of the co-founders, David Carr. So go listen to that Beyond Risk and Back episode. And you can always Google benefits, scientific benefits, scientific research behind Yerba Mate. And you will understand why we give this drink out to people in the industry. This is a hidden gem that is getting more and more popular. So please support us being supported by Guayaki Yerba Mate and go pick yourself up a can and get some for your teens. And then second, I need to thank Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium people themselves for letting us be here and broadcasting this show and helping us email all of the speakers to get the information, the, 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 the new cutting edge research in brain development, addiction recovery, mental health. And I get to interview these incredible people and get 
their information into your heads, parents. So thank you to Winter Symposium and thank you to Guayaki. Okay, let's get back to our guest. So we're in talking about the military, we have a kind of a cartoonishly extreme example of, of how a brain can get traumatized. Now, the problem is, is that it's not a cartoon and the examples of it are, are happening today as we speak. Yes. Like it is a, this is an ongoing thing and you're never going to have a lack of clients. So now let's transition this for the, for the families and the parents who are, are listening to the show. Um, is this, is this PTSD thing something happened that the body can handle, but the brain can't, the brain can handle it, the body can't, or neither of them can handle, or there's a, a disconnect between the two. And, and we're ta- you, you said off the, off the air in the commercial, you know, uh, growing up in an abusive household. So right. things you see that your body can't reconcile, or is it vice versa? Things you experience in the body and your brain can't reconcile it. Sure. Which is it? Well, well let, me, let me try to s- simplify a very complicated Great. issue. It's both. It's body and brain are impacted. They're not separate. They're interconnected. Okay, good. So there's even a literature that says if you've been ex- exposed to trauma, let's say sexual violence as a child, yes. the body remembers. So even if you forget it and, and repress it and deny that it ever happened and it comes back later, your body is still experiencing symptoms, a lot of lower back pain, a lot of anxiety symptoms that uh, the body is holding on to, but the mind is not really recalling. Later on, it comes together and then it's overwhelming and it affects uh, your judgment and your, your consciousness. So there are splittings in the brain and the body, and it's really complicated, but no one is immune. People cope in different ways. There's not a universal pathway. And you can acquire this in a civilian way as well as in a military way. It's helplessness that matters. So so I was watching a video many years ago, mm-hmm. and a portion of the video was a dog abuse a moment of, of extreme dog abuse. Oh. I was, I, I, it kept me awake. Mm-hmm. Anytime I thought about it, I was not able to sleep for the rest of the night. Right. The tool that was used to abuse the dog I have in the maintenance shed of our facility, and I can't look at the tool without mm-hmm. being reminded right. of the video. My stomach gets tight, right. my throat gets tight, and I start shaking when I see the tool. Sure. That's trauma. Mm-hmm. That's the trigger cycle. Correct. My healing process in, in years ago was then to turn around and start donating to the ASPCA, the International Humane right. Society, Hope for Paws, mm-hmm. to help do something. And I, right. I feel fulfillment and right. now can move into the maintenance shed and see that thing mm-hmm. and know that I'm doing something about it. Right. Now, again, an example. We... Is that how it works? Is it is it literally that small, that simple, or is it bigger than that, especially well, when we're dealing with the big T trauma? Okay, so, so what you've described is a wonderful example of a traumatic exposure, its impact on you with some core symptoms, and we could probably describe it as low-grade PTSD. It didn't, cause, it didn't ripple out and cause you to become problematic in so many other areas of life. I didn't disassociate from my wife. Exactly. I I was able to go to work. I didn't start drinking again. Correct. So what you did is you also found a path that is really universal and has been talked about for a long time, but not recognized sufficiently. And that is finding meaningful outlets. And actually the 12 step community has the same wisdom in it. Help the next person up. 12 steps. So the 12th step is part of the healing that Viktor Frankl talks about and others who say, Use your misery to find meaning and do something constructive and it will help you heal. And it works. Now, that being said, it's not a singular solution when you get into the more complex, sustained or multiple areas of injury where 
PTSD symptoms become really overwhelming and then set off a whole cascade of drinking and drugging and isolating and feeling unique and, and disconnecting and, uh, and rumination. When it gets higher grade and repetitive with a bunch of little T's and big T's, it takes a lot more effort than just saying, well, do the next right thing. When you said feeling unique, I want to specify that mm -hmm. for parents because in the industry, mental health and addiction industry, we have a concept called terminally unique. Correct. And, and what we're saying is you feel not special in the good way. You feel like no one understands that's you. Correct. That's correct. In fact, that's a very overlooked part of the PTSD journey. And I use the term terminal uniqueness in my groups all the time yeah. because it's so easy. Even people who are within the peer community of other veterans, they feel like, well, my unit had it worse and what I did was unique and you just can't understand. Now, if you're part of a band of brothers, it's easier to break down those barriers of uniqueness right. and then the healing takes place. But if you're in a civilian world and you are a combat veteran with tremendous injury and let's say five deployments, you feel disconnected and no one is going to understand me. So they become very silent and say nothing and take on a combination of what I call uh, shame-based arrogance, where it's like, you know, you can't begin to understand what I've been through because your biggest stress was your, your, the battery in your car died. So I'm superior to you because you don't know what it's like to go through what I've went through. The flip side is I've got some deeply buried secrets that I feel responsible for the death of civilians or my, my, my best buddy, even though it's not rational. But if you knew what I did or what I feel that I did, you would think I'm inferior. So those two factors work and put up this wall of insulation that's saying, no one's going to understand me, so therefore I will be quiet and I will work myself to death or drink myself to death. And that's where the uniqueness comes into play. This, uh, the, the, the this is incredible because everything you, you describe, so I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of examples that I've experienced in, in my life. Sure. For example, uh, uh, I, I, was at, I was at the gym uh, a few months after back surgery. A guy said, how you doing? I told him, "Get it, you know, getting old as hell, which is a, a phrase we all say. Right. He was a three-tour Afghanistan combat medic. He says, I've seen the alternative, it's worse to shut me down, to shut me up. Sure. And that was, while it helped me in that moment, mm -hmm. it also told me, don't complain to him. Right. right? But that was that superiority sure. exactly. shame thing exactly. that he had going you on. You were whining about something he a wished his friends back, had the luxury uh, of. Exactly. Yeah. And now, and then I can take that and we, we, we can look in a group mm -hmm. of, of children who are right. talking about their trauma right. and they start like racing to the bottom yep. of their darkness to one you know, we say one up each other. These are one downing each That's other right. the whole way through. Well, they don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing of it, course. nor did the parents, nor did the teachers necessarily. Nor did that vet. Nor did that vet, right. right. So if you're running on urge and instinct that says I'm superior and you're an idiot and you're whining and there's no bandwidth of thinking, well, he hasn't gone through what I've gone through, but we're connected and he's a nice guy. You, you don't do that depth of thinking. You just follow your gut instinct and say, Life sucks, and so do you, and, and you're just an idiot, so leave me alone. But but under that mm -hmm. is the whole shame Absolutely. That, that he's, you know, maybe the person I Correct. killed could have cured cancer. That's and right. maybe the, and I have heard, mm -hmm. I, I had the pleasure and privilege of meeting one of the survivors from Hamburger Hill uh -huh. here in, in Colorado Springs. Great. Because they all, what was remaining yep. of their platoon would all yep. get together. And he stumbled near us, I helped him up, and he sat in a chair, and he just started talking. It all spills out. And the tears that came up of him yeah. saying, 
did the person I killed, the the, yep. the children I sent to die, yep. that's what's underneath the bravado and the put down. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact same with exactly. the children who have been attacked or abused right. that they have this, you, I, I, it's my fault. I'm a piece of right. shit because exactly. I can't. Well, also, let me inject an important point, and this is something I try teaching people, veterans and civilians who have PTSD. The first instinct is to become angry. So you've said something that I don't like, or you've insulted me, or I feel shame, or whatever has triggered you, whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, an anniversary date, or whatever it is. Right. My first response is usually to become angry. And the question that is often necessary for that person who's suffering to ask is, what hurts? rather than what's pissed me off. Right. It's so easy to chase the anger. And that's what gets kids and adults into trouble. They chase the anger. And you it becomes, made me angry. What you said, you, right. that made me And it, the trigger is so much the deeper. And then you go and do other things that make you angrier and more shame-based. And it's a never-ending cycle. So when you say it's a race to the bottom, that's part of what happens when you get triggered. And in fact, it's kind of funny because, you know, I, I teach clinicians to try to speak the language of the people that they're working with. So when I work with a group of veterans, I don't use esoteric vocabulary. I, <laughs> I use things, I, I try to use their language as best I can. Sure. And one of the things I say is, well, we're here to help you identify triggers so you don't react in an angry way and do dumb shit things. Right. And they all laugh. It's like, and they know, and they come in with examples of, Walmart collisions or, or road rage, and we talk about the triggers and the issues and expand their understanding. And underneath it is almost always what you're talking about, some secret of, don't you know how awful it was, I was, how it, the bad the outcomes were, and it's all on my shoulders and leave me alone. Right. So that is, and when you, can, when you can get past the barriers and see what hurts, then the healing can begin. It's not as simple as identifying the trigger and using conditioning techniques. So it's not as simple as, using hypnosis, EMDR, or simplistic conditioning techniques because this spreads out into other domains of the reason of my existence, spirituality, trust, um, the way I think, cognition. There are all these factors that get um, doubled down in injury with multiple exposures to trauma, and it turns you into uh, a curmudgeonly, difficult, judgmental, instantly reactive person who's not terribly patient and doesn't want to bother to understand who you are because you're just inferior or superior to me there's a there's a song uh by a group called rival sons where in one of their one of their songs they talk about a soldier coming home and there's a the 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 the, the chorus of the song is how could you love me if you knew where i'd been right and the, and perfect. underneath all of that anger and that road rage and the drinking yep. and this is this is not just true for a soldier who's seen the horrors of man Mm -hmm. and has participated in them, but also a young girl who's been raped. Absolutely. And a, and a young child has, who's been abused. How could you love me if you knew where I've been? Dr. Briskin, talk about how people can, can follow up with your work, your research. You were here speaking. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult since I work uh, in a very select sure, community. Sure, sure. I, you know, I, I do some lectures periodically. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of a uh, some blogging a couple of years ago, but uh, and I've written a couple of books on the matter, but you know, mostly for addiction professionals and, and family members dealing with complex co-occurring issues. Um, so it's a little bit hard to access stuff for me. But if you want to give my email address, we're happy to give references Please do. Please do. and ideas and additional materials. There's an infinite amount of 
understanding the complexity of this that is necessary when you get into the high rates of exposure. And you were talking about other populations, yeah. fire rescue, firefighters, prison guards, the Native American, Native, all, all these people have exposure. And when you're also talking about the sexual abuse survivors, children are most vulnerable to feeling like they're the cause of what happened. And then perpetrators say, you, I did this because you were so cute. That feeling of I am responsible and it is my fault is very difficult to, to challenge because what happens in a meltdown situation when you're helpless, you become godlike and think it's all under my control whether this is good or bad. It's an illusion, it's addictive, it's hard to break that, but getting people to understand they're not in control of everything and they are, to use Carl Morlante's term, who's a, a writer who talks about what it's like to go to war, you're the tip of the spear. You didn't create all this. We didn't. We as a country placed you there. You didn't decide to go there and take that person's life or blow up that school. You are just a part of this large arc that comes back to the rest of us, and you spread the burden as opposed to it's all about me. So if it's about me, then you get the terminal uniqueness. It's all my fault. I have that shame basis. I carry the full burden. So in part, working individually or in group, you spread the burden, you relieve yourself of feeling responsible for all that's gone wrong, and then you can rejoin in a selective way and learn to trust again. And you mentioned abused dogs. Dogs are a great way, by the way, of healing yeah. because they are unconditionally loving most times, unless they've been abused, they, they need extra work. Right. But they, they really help create a sense of safety and relieve some of the burden of helplessness and forge a bond that can then spread out, especially if they're trained. And, and the way they're using them in the prison systems yes. with vets, mm -hmm. like it's just, it's incredible. And we've had dogs at our right. facility since our facility right. began. Yeah. Please give an email address so people sure. can reach out to you. Okay, uh, my email address is jwboris at aol.com. jwboris at aol.com. I won't make fun of you for having an AOL address. <laughs> I was waiting for that because of your age. I I'm okay it. with that. It's cool. <laughs> Dr. Burskin, thank you so much sure. for this. Uh, as, as, as people found out that you were going to be a guest on the show, everybody was like, I can't wait. I'd love to do a longer show with you and get in touch sure. with you myself and set up a longer one. That would be fine. I'd be Do to doctor, do that. thank you for your a time pleasure. and helping the parents. Great. Thank you so Appreciate much. It. Bye now. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you so much for joining me, parents. Please remember to give us a listen, a like, a subscribe, and share us with your friends, other parents who need the support. I have a few people I'd like to thank. First is Frazier PR. I'd also like to thank Your Cause Consulting. And I need to give a shout out to Deepin Productions. As always, thank you to Mental Health News Radio for hosting this show. And I'd like to thank Guayaki. Guayaki has sponsored our booth here at the Winter Symposium. And of course, all my fans everywhere, all over the world, thank you so much for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. Remember, parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I'll see you next week. <laughs>